Hello out there. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we take a deep look at opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Research is increasingly showing that housing is a foundation for virtually everything. It predicts what kind of neighborhood you'll grow up in, the quality of school you'll attend, your access to transportation and amenities. Housing shapes segregation patterns, the crime levels of your surroundings, job opportunities, exposure to certain health risks, your friends and social networks. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, and yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. The intersections of housing and other sectors are complicated and fluid. And today we're gonna break down the connection between housing and health. And good housing is good health. And we have a nationally recognized expert who's gonna help us make sense of all this, Dr. Megan Sandal, pediatrician, a professor of pediatrics at Boston University, principal investigator at Children's Health Watch. She's the former pediatric medical director of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. She publishes frequently on the connection between housing and child health. Uh, It is unclear when and if she actually sleeps with all these (laughs) responsibilities. Maybe we'll find out during the podcast. So, Megan, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm really excited to talk about this topic today. Yeah, me too. So you are, you know, one of the leading advocates in the nation that good housing is good health. And you often talk and write about how sometimes the prescription that a child really needs for their ailments is a prescription that you can't necessarily write from your doctor's office. And that prescription is actually a safe, decent, affordable home. And so I'm curious how you got to this point. Was there an aha moment for you where you felt compelled to talk about these issues? Was there a a class in medical school where it was talking about housing and health? I mean, how did you get to this point? Yeah, no, thanks for the the question. In many ways, I was very blessed early in my career. I had um, graduated from medical school and had come to uh, what was then Boston City Hospital, now known as Boston Medical Center. And uh, I was working in the pediatric intensive care unit. And one night we admitted a child with asthma and the child was really sick, was, you know, we were thinking we might need to intubate her in order to help her breathe. We're throwing all this medicine at her, really scary moments in terms of what was gonna happen. And I'm tearing through the chart, trying to figure out why this kid was there because previously she had had pretty well-controlled asthma. And I ended up that night asking a family kind of a fateful question, which was what had changed? What was different? And Mm. they talked about getting a cat in their house. And I was like, I was kind of mystified. I had looked through the chart and had seen that she was supposed to be allergic to cats. And I ended up asking the family why. And it turned out they had found mouse droppings in the child's bed and they were Mm. really freaked out and they couldn't get their landlord to make a change. And so for them, that what made sense was to get a cat to get rid of the mice. And for me, it was kind of this eureka Mm. moment where I said, oh my goodness, I can't send this kid home. Like the thing that made her sick was potentially this cat. And in the end, for me, I was like, oh, the prescription I wanted to write was for a healthy home. And that wasn't stocked at the pharmacy at my hospital. And so it it put me on a path to trying to start to think about what were ways in which we could make that prescription available to everyone. Mm-hmm. 
And so, I mean, what is, personally, what does that feel like? So I'm just imagining, right, you are a doctor. You went to school for like 30 years to become a doctor. And with the stroke of a pen, you can write a prescription for all types of medicine, except the one that your patient really needs. I mean, personally, what is that, what does that feel like? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm lucky in the sense that um, the hospital that I trained at has um, really a culture of innovation. And so in a lot of ways, um, really embraces and says, yeah, when you can't do something for your patient, that's your driving force to try and create something new. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was, um, I originally went to medical school on a National Service Corps scholarship. I was gonna work in underserved medicine. And it actually put me down a path of doing research and policy work that I didn't think I was gonna do. Um, mm -hmm. I ended up saying, okay, I need to develop new programs. I need to start to work with the leading thinkers around um, community health workers and going into people's homes and fixing people's homes and getting research, you know, grants from HUD of all places around how to, you know, make healthier homes. And in many ways, I think that um, it continues to motivate me to this day that there aren't enough, you know, of those programs out there. There aren't enough supply of affordable housing. There's not enough ways in which we can help people have that, you know, really stable oasis that helps kids get on their life course. And that's why I was really excited about joining this coalition is because we're gonna make that a reality for the millions of people who need that prescription. Mm -hmm. Do you, so you talk about this kind of this perspective, this broad perspective. Do you feel like that perspective is prevalent enough in the healthcare community today? Are there enough doctors and healthcare professionals talking about the connection between housing and health? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say having literally been talking about housing and health for now 20 years. So the story I was telling you about the ICU with my patient was mm -hmm. from 1996, right? And so yeah. we, um, I've been like feeling like I've been talking about this issue for a long time. And I would say the drumbeat around housing and health, that connection, what we need to do, that we have to do something is so much louder now than it was two decades ago. And so I I feel really happy about the fact that as kind of healthcare systems really realize that healthcare alone is not going to achieve health that we if we're if health is our ultimate outcome we need to get outside our four walls we need to think about the quote unquote social determinants of health and the the good news of that recognition is is that housing may be the most important social determinant of health out there. You can do a great education program, you can do a great jobs program. If you aren't stable in your housing, I promise you all those efforts will be undermined. And so it's not to say that housing is the only social determinant, but it sometimes is the foundational one. It's the one you have to get right in order mm. to get everything else working. And I think that that for me, I think that's why when I talk to other healthcare professionals about needing to advocate for more housing and more options and more availability, they get it. They see this every day in their patients. And I think they're gonna be a really important sector for us to bring to the table. Great. And so you mentioned the uh, the campaign itself, and so I wanted uh, to talk a, a little bit more specifically about the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. And you and your organization, Children's Health Watch, are founding partners of this campaign, 
And we're trying to, you know, build a national movement to bring many sectors together to advocate for federal policies that protect and expand affordable housing. And as you alluded to, I mean, federal housing assistance is sometimes overlooked, it's underfunded. Um, And so we're bringing together an unprecedented number of leading national organizations in many sectors, uh, health, education, civil rights, to start advocating for housing. And I think this is unprecedented in terms of housing advocacy. You know, usually housing advocates advocate for housing and health advocates advocate for health. But in this campaign, we have health advocates that are advocating for housing, education advocates advocating for housing, uh, and that's a big deal. So talk a little bit more about why your organization, Children's Health Watch, joined this campaign. Yeah, I I think we were really thrilled um, to join the campaign because in a lot of ways it's so consistent with our mission, right? Children's Health Watch is an organization that was founded a little over 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago around this idea that, that public policies are incredibly important to the health and development of children and families. And so um, at that point, it was founded around welfare reform and wanting to watch what the impacts of those policy changes were gonna be on young children because we know that common hardships, things like food insecurity, housing instability, um, uh, problems keeping the heat or the lights on are so impactful to the health and well-being of children and their parents. And so we have come to realize that in a lot of ways, when we do our research and we show those connectivity between those hardships and health, the solutions lie in federal and state policy. And so our ability to then carry that evidence forward and say, hey, look, policymakers, the evidence is clear that there is a an undeniable connection between a stable, decent, affordable home and good health. And now the urgency is now that we need to act. We need to go forward. And there are great solutions out there. I think that many times people will sometimes um, poo-poo government and be like, oh, government can't do anything. I really disagree. Mm -hmm. I think while we're not asking government to do everything, we know that government needs to be part of the solution here. And there have to be ways in which we can create the public-private partnerships that are going to really, I think, address this um, uh, affordable housing a crisis that we have. And I, I just think that what's been exciting for us at Children's Health Watch has been how many organizations agree to that, right? The National mm-hmm. Association of Community Health Centers, um, FRAC, um, uh, being able, we're talking to the American Academy of Pediatrics. I think there are a lot of healthcare organizations that get this, and I think they can bring really new voices to move this forward. Yeah, what, what worries you about this effort? You know, I think one of the things that's hard right now is to to cut through. Um, there's just obviously a lot of uh, chaos going on. And so being able to um, move beyond that negativity to really providing a positive vision here. So we're really mm-hmm. trying hard to say this is about um, the future of Um, uh, kids and adults and families in America. These are ways in which we want opportunity to start at home. We want everyone to have that fair shot at being able to do that. That's the American dream. And in many ways, I feel like um, we have to maintain that positive vision. We have to be able to kind of be aspirational and not feel constrained about what the previous history of what possible was defined as. We have to create a new definition of what's possible. And I really believe that we can do that. It's 
what happens a lot is people always bemoan the fact that nobody talks about housing. They'll talk about anything else. And mm -hmm. and I feel like what we need to do, our challenge will be is to say, you care about health? Great. If you care about health, you care about where people live. If you care about education? Great. You care about where people live. And, and if that's the case, that these are the new solutions to what have really felt like intransitant problems. And so being able to kind of um, get people motivated with that positive vision is going to continue to be a challenge. And I think I think we can get there, but it's going to require a lot of voices and a lot of voices speaking in unison. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think one of the other um, challenges, too, that, that at least I've seen is that you know, each of these sectors, um, there, there's just sort of the daily inbox of fires that they deal with on a daily basis. I mean, even in the, the healthcare community, I mean, there's there's always something going on uh, in terms of, of health policy. There's, you know, every politician has an idea in terms of, uh, you know, Obamacare, Trump care, individual yeah. mandates, Medicare, Medicaid, negotiating drug prices, the payment system, and whether it incentivizes preventive care as much as it should. I mean, there's just so many fires. And I think part of the challenge that we'll have is um, being, as you said, being able to be forward-looking um, and also handle the daily fires that we have uh, each in our own respective um, sectors. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit about the the research itself, uh, and I don't want to get too wonky into the research findings, uh, but there's some significant research that links housing and health, and I think it you know it's one thing to say good housing is good health, and that, that sounds nice, And there, but there's actually a lot of research to back it up, and you're a leader in this field, and so, uh, I mean, some of the examples that, that come to my mind is that, I mean, we know that young kids who live in unstable housing are 20% uh, more likely to be hospitalized than those who live in stable housing. They're at increased risk of developmental delays and being underweight and asthma and, and mental health problems later in life. And um, uh, children and families with housing assistance have lower blood lead levels compared to similar kids in families without assistance. Uh, we know that all of these experiences in childhood run into adulthood. Um, so, I mean, there's just so much. And, and there's not only the impact on individual people, those are also uh, the cost issue, right? I mean, we're paying an enormous cost uh, because people don't have safe, decent, affordable housing. Uh, and, and Children's Health Watch has done some, I think, eye-popping analysis about what this problem actually costs America every year. I mean, it's, it's just enormous. So I just kind of wanted to ask you, I mean, there's all that research, but what strikes you most about all of these research links that we're, that we're increasingly seeing? Yeah, I think I, I think what happens a lot is that we we tend to talk about um, housing, I think, sometimes too one dimensionally instead of really acknowledging all the dimensions that are important in how housing impacts health. So I tend to talk about it as like the four dimensions or the four walls in which how uh, housing impacts health. So I'll first talk about literally just quality, right? Like that's how mm -hmm. I first got interested in this. It was, you know, there's such good evidence around, you know, pests being connected to asthma or lead being connected to um, developmental delays or issues related to heat, right? Like, like not having mm -hmm. the right heating systems and mm -hmm. things like that, or having to, you know, choose between heating your home or eating or things like that. Those are just such a, a amazing amount of literature, decades, sometimes centuries of literature on that. Sure. Um, 
The second is this idea of stability. And I think we often associate just homelessness with um, what stability means. But I often will say um, it really stability is like an iceberg. Homelessness is the part of the iceberg you can see. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. iceberg below the surface. And so I try really hard to talk about things like multiple moves. If you're moving at least twice in a year, you're at high risk for having adverse health because of that. And a lot of that is underpinned with kind of the third kind of dimension, which is affordability. And we know that when you're paying a lot of your take-home income for rent, you don't have enough money left over for other things. And so you may make sacrifices about medications. You may make sacrifices for food. Mm-hmm. You make, may make sacrifices for heat again or other things. And so, and then I think the last piece is really location. Where is housing located? Is it in a neighborhood of opportunity? And are, do you have access to good schools? Do you have access to jobs, to transit and things like that? And so I often feel like we have to talk about it in that totality, quality, Mm -hmm. stability, affordability, location. That's the ultimate kind of like prescription for good health is really a stable, decent, affordable home in a neighborhood of opportunity. Um, You're right. We as Children's Health Watch have been publishing a lot on this. We recently published in um, uh, Pediatrics, which is the leading journal of the American uh, Pediatric Association around what were the three forms of housing instability and how did they impact caregiver and child health? And we focused on homelessness, we focused on multiple moves, and we focused on whether you reported in the last year being behind on rent. And Mm -hmm. what we showed was one in three low-income renter families have at at least one form of housing instability. So it's incredibly common. And we showed things like, yeah, like a 20% increased risk of a child hospitalization, eye-popping numbers around maternal depression, two and threefold higher rates of maternal depression, um, and then risks of, of developmental delays, which not only impact kids now, but impact their future life earnings. Um, and then we took those numbers and then tried to come up with what's the estimated costs of that unstable housing. If we were able to have every kid in family in America have stable housing, what would be the avoided costs? And we Mm -hmm. estimated it's $111 billion over 10 years. And so oftentimes people will say to me like, oh, we can't afford to have everyone have a stable home. And I push back and say, we can't afford not to. Like this is, we are incurring costs right now. And they're costs that I think are totally avoidable if we can find the political will to try and find the solutions yeah and I mean you often hear and you know the talking heads on, on the radio and the news talking about the uh, continued escalation of health care costs and here we have an analysis that says we're gonna we're gonna spend 111 billion dollars uh, over the next 10 years in avoidable health care costs due to housing problems right I mean that's yeah. just an enormous uh, an enormous amount um, Wanted to hit more on the um, the affordability aspect of this. So uh, we know that you know families that are in affordable housing they can spend about five times more on their health care. Um, and the idea is that you know if you're spending fifty percent or more of your income uh, toward the rent, what leftover income do you have to invest in 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 your health and your wellness? Can you can you uh, drill a little bit more down into that? So when you have more income left over after you've paid your rent, what types of investments can you be making in your healthcare that make you healthier over the long run? 
Yeah, I think um, there are a lot of different ways in which um, we can think about kind of uh, the the income that you have left to make you healthy can play out. So the first is affordable food. We know mm. that healthier food is is more expensive. And so your ability to have more money in your pocket means you can buy more fresh fruits and vegetables, you can do things. Um, the other is, is that for a lot of um, kids, uh, there are uh, these kind of uh, ancillary activities, things like being able to buy books or being able to be on a sports mm -hmm. team or being able to do other things that are incredibly important to your long-term health that you're not able to do if you don't have additional dollars left over. Um, I, I think the other piece is is that we know medications are incredibly expensive. And so we actually looked at in our um, pediatrics paper um, this idea of a healthcare cost sacrifice. And what we found was if you were, say, behind on rent, um, chances are you've already sacrificed a medication bill. You, you know, three or four times the rate of, say, a family that's reporting not being behind on rent are reporting that you either avoided going to see the doctor because of fear of costs or you didn't purchase a medicine because of fear of cost. And mm. those are things where, you know, those those undermine everything in the healthcare system, right? Somebody who gets sick yeah. that's avoidable is somebody who's in your emergency room clogging a bed or is in a hospital bed that, that doesn't need to be used. And I think that when we think about that, we need to think about it not just in the short-term cost, but in terms of the systems costs that it creates mm -hmm. that are incredibly inefficient. Yeah, yeah. And then I want to I want to drill into the the location issue, the fourth domain that you talked about. And I think that this is a this is a domain that is uh, gathering more steam and more attention, uh, particularly after the the Raj Chetty uh, research that came out that uh, place matters, location matters, where you grow up uh, matters. And you know Chetty analyzed the the long-term adult outcomes for low-income kids who are able to access lower poverty neighborhoods. Um, and he found, you know, tremendous education outcomes and, and all sorts of outcomes. So uh, living in better neighborhoods is, is good health as well. I'm wondering if you can uh, talk to that. Yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, this kind of fourth dimension is the one that I, I think is um, – uh, in some ways the most exciting. So as we think about mm -hmm. kind of what does a stable, decent, affordable home mean, I think that a lot of ways you think about a home as your foundation, your foundation to education, your foundation to a job, your foundation to honestly feel safe and to be able to really change your, your life course. And so to me, like I tend to think about um, life course as like a graph and it's a line graph that at certain points you can pivot up or you can pivot down depending on what your opportunities are. And in the Raj Chetty research really emphasizes that if you're a young kid, a kid say below 13, and you live in mm -hmm. a neighborhood that doesn't have concentrated poverty, that has better schools, that has more economic opportunity, your pivot point up increases your lifetime earnings by 30%. And mm -hmm. I feel like, like it, you know, as I sometimes will say, if that was a medication, it would be on the pharmacy of every hospital. It, right. it is such a powerful kind of statistic. And I think in a lot of ways, we need to more and more focus on really community development. There's a kind of a famous phrase in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that your zip code may be more important to your health than your genetic code. And so it's it's where I feel like my sector needs to start putting emphasis is that we do a ton of what's called precision medicine. 
using your genetics to predict what your uh, diseases are and to look at ways in which we can impact your health through uh, better precision medicine. And, and I believe we should talk about precision medicine about where you live. We should be in the zip code improvement business as much mm -hmm. as we are in looking at your genetic code and maximizing that. And I believe we'll get there. And I think that housing and working with um, policymakers to improve neighborhoods may be an area of us to really change life expectancy in a way that we've never appreciated before. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, I mean, I think this is an area, too, where uh, the housing advocates um, have, to, have to pay more attention to, quite honestly. I think for a long time in the housing community, it was very much uh, a focus on, you know, getting um, safe roofs over people's heads. Uh, but as the Chetty research shows, that we have to also worry about where those roofs are, are located uh, and ensuring that affordable housing is, is equitably spread uh, across many neighborhoods, not just neighborhoods of, of concentrated poverty, right? We have to start talking about this issue of, of concentrated poverty and how we geographically um, sort of locate um, affordable housing options so that families can live and have choices to live in neighborhoods um, uh, across across cities. Um, so that is a really interesting sort of framing of those those four domains, um, and and I I, I think that's a, a great way to frame it: quality, stability, affordability, and location. I think that housers can learn a lot from that framing in terms of how we talk about this issue uh, to other uh, healthcare folks. So I have a I actually have a presentation that I'm giving in a few weeks to community health workers uh, in Richmond, Virginia, and this is a framing that I think I'm going to steal from you, Megan. I, I, absolutely I really, steal. I really shamelessly, like yeah, shamelessly cite liberally, I yeah. It, it, no, I, I, I think we need common language, Mike. I, yeah, I think we have to have common language across sectors, and I think that will help us where we'll create the echo chamber where you know, particularly policymakers will hear the same messages from teachers, from doctors, from yeah. nurses, from community health workers, from, uh, you know, housing advocates, from economic opportunity people. And that will help, mm -hmm. I think, push this forward. Yeah, and the language barriers are so strong, right? I mean, we've we've been in our little silos for a long time, and so the language we use, we might be sort of saying the same thing, but the language we use is very different. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of translation, and these types of conversations help help me translate um, pretty well. So we're almost out of time, uh, and I want to be respectful every time, but I want to ask you uh, a couple last uh, questions. So. Um, I'm going to make you, I'm going to take away your, your doctor title and I'm going to, I'm going to make you president for a day. You'll be our, you'll be our first female president. So yeah. what would, what would the Sandell administration do um, in terms of federal housing policy? Uh, are there specific actions or policies that you really would prioritize as the top one or two that the federal government should be really pushing on? Yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, um, I think we need to address the kind of um, the need for more stable, decent, affordable housing through a couple different routes. I think we need to innovate a lot in different types of housing supply. Like we basically build houses the same way we did 50 years ago. And I think yeah. that there could be real ways in which to invest in innovation. And really, I think there has to be some policy levers, particularly locally around zoning and other things that would allow us to build a lot more, not only getting to accessory dwelling units and other things. And that's where I think technology, um, uh, we could really unleash kind of a, a new type of um, uh, building structures and new types of layouts that I think would allow us to get a lot more units online faster. Um, I also believe that we need to help 
you know, families make rent. We know income is the ultimate underlying problem here. And so I think that while we need to do a lot more job creation and job growth and, and jobs that are going to pay a, a much more living wage um, in these, I think we could also innovate and start with renters tax credits and other things that would allow us to be able to put more money in people's pockets. Again, I think of those as, as a two sides of the same coin. If you don't address supply and you just help people have more money, you're just going to raise rents ultimately. So you have to do both together. But I actually think a renter's tax credit may be a way of which to get more money into the housing sector without having to do um, uh, vouchers and a lot of administration that, that may be, I think, really uh, viable. Um, I think the third piece to me is creating more financing vehicles so that we can um, fund more long-term affordable housing. And that's mm -hmm. where I've been really pushing our affordable housing sector um, to work with hospitals to create financing vehicles that we can participate in that are going to be really helpful. And that may be expanding um, low-income housing tax credits and new market tax credits or building new types of tax credits that would be a way of which we could um, – uh, really, I think, unlock more capital to be able to drive these projects. Great, great. Okay, last question. You've given, you've given us housing folks a, a lot to think about, but what should, what should doctors be doing in this space? How can doctors um, start to chart forward on, on improvements in this space to connect the housing and health? So, you know, my, my experience is you know, I mean, I, I've lived in a lot of different places. And I'm usually I'm usually pretty good about, you know, doing my annual physicals and all those sorts of things. And so I, because I've lived in a lot of places, I'm frequently filling out new patient paperwork. And I can't recall a single time when a patient questionnaire asked me about my housing situation. I can't recall a physician ever asking me about my housing uh, situation. So is that maybe one area uh, where health professionals can, you know, make, make incremental progress toward connecting these two sectors? I mean, what would you, what would be your advice to uh, healthcare professionals? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think we as healthcare need to do more to just understand where patients live as part of our healthcare. I think mm -hmm. we can do um, more what's called social screening. We can ask questions about food insecurity or housing insecurity or, yeah. or energy insecurity and get that as kind of a, a norm. That's normal for us to ask that. These are social determinants. We should know them. We should mm -hmm. intervene on them. But I also think that that then, that data then drives us as a sector to participate in trying to solve the problem. And that's why a lot of times uh, doctors will say to me, I don't want to ask about housing because I don't have a solution for it. And I push mm. back on them and say, no, we need to collect this data so we understand the scope of the problem among our patients. And that will motivate us then to really use this as a way to improve health. This is a housing prescription. We can think about ways in which to engage in. And it's not to say that we're going to own and operate housing, but we can engage in housing partnerships in order to make a difference. Great. Wow. Well, I could talk to you for days, but we are, we're out of time. Uh, so I, you're doing some really inspiring work. Uh, thank you for using your talents to, to make our country a better place. Thanks for making me smarter on these issues and hopefully the audience smarter. Thanks for being a part of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and uh, we'll let you, is there anything else that the, that the audience ought to know? No, I, I just, I want to thank you, Mike, for your leadership in this. And I'm just really excited to see where we're going to go. And, and we uh, want people to join the website and start to do some more advocacy on this topic.
Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and speaking of the website, you can go to www.opportunityhome.org and you can check out uh, many of the things that uh, Megan and I talked about today. You can also read a blog uh, that Megan recently wrote for uh, the campaign and there's lots of lots of interesting stuff on there. So please check out the website if you haven't already.